back. Great White North in Toronto where it's snowing. And this is Tumble Vision episode what? 47. 47. We've done all year. Here with host Deb Schultz on the West Coast. Yo. And Kevin Marks, also somewhere that has a decent connection this week. Think Z. <laughs> yes. Yes. In and the valley. And accompanying Kevin's beautiful accent and classical education is our extremely special guest, a very early tumbler. In fact, as Kevin pointed out, tumbling before we were using the word and before the internet really knew what it was, Tom Coates, Tom Coates, the guru of social software, head of product for Yahoo for ages, creator of Fire Eagle, blogger at Plastic Bag, holder together of many British interweb people. And others. It's a delight to have you here. <laughs> it's lovely to be here. <laughs> Yay! Listen to how good they sound. And it's Brits and Jewish women. And so, we are on. It's I, the if Brits. it sounds like I'm high, I'm not high. It's just very funny. <laughs> you, you could be high. That's okay. It's the Brit. I, I love high. that. It's I the Brits high. and the Jewish chicks. It's an internet. Okay. We have, Tom, the only explicit business and tech related podcast on the internet. We're pretty proud of that. Uh, so, yeah, if you wanted to be high, we wouldn't have a problem with it. So let's first dive in real quick to some things that have happened the last couple of weeks. We were off for the holidays. We want to say hi to everyone who's, who's joining us this week, Labfly and Christy Dina and uh, Myers and Zena, of course, and Gene Becker. We've got lots of people here chatting with us. Come join us, tumblevision.tv slash live. So the first thing that springs to mind that I feel like we have to ask you about, Tom Coates, is um, even though I know we addressed it in a past show, is the debt, the the death of Yahoo or the sort of predicted death of Yahoo since rumor went out that Delicious is going to be dropped or sold or killed. We don't know from Yahoo or do we know? Do we know what's going to happen? Oh, so I mean, these are always difficult questions to answer. I, don't, I think it's kind of unprofessional in some ways for people who have recently left a company like Yahoo to kind of, you know, like rake over all your particular negative issues with it. Most people who've worked in it the company for any period of time sort of feel that there are things that they would do better or things they regret or frustrations of management. And I think, I think undeniably, you know, a lot of people at Yahoo feel that way. Uh, um, but, you know, it is a bit difficult for me to kind of feel completely comfortable talking about that stuff openly. Um, and of course there are lots of good things that happen at Yahoo and always have been There's you know, the, the Yahoo development network is still an incredibly strong, interesting thing. Flickr remains, you know, a, a paragon of, you know what the web should be um and because there are all the you know and they still i think everyone forgets there's still a very kind of there's still a very they're still the third biggest trafficked website on the planet and they're still profitable so i mean it's you know i i'm not i'm not going to be here to either defend or cremate you know yahoo but <laughs> i think it, it is it is fair to say that um uh i i think i think there is a tendency in our industry to kind of revel in in negative and positive rumors. Um, oh, in every industry. <laughs> and I think you know. For, yeah, well, yeah, it's true. But I th- and, and clearly, clearly, Yahoo has had a tricky time. Um, uh, I don't think it is quite as bad as people say it is. But you know, I, do, do I, we just I, practically, I, Tom, know what's going to happen with um, with delicious, or is it just not clear? No, I mean, I can hypothesize, and that's pretty much the. The simplest thing, like my, my hypothesis here, um, 
And this is, you know, and this is guess, uninformed guesswork from someone who used to work at the company. So you can, you can take it as seriously or as not seriously as you want. I'm not going to pretend that I have any special insight on this one. Um, but from what I, from what I get um, from these companies, from Yahoo, um, I mean, I, I don't entirely buy the idea that they were talking about. Well, I mean, the rumors have been going around the, the Internet for a while that they've been trying to sell off um, Delicious. I haven't, you know, certainly I never heard anything to that effect while I was in the company. But, um, you know, certainly that, that, that rumor has been going around for a while. Um, I think they, this, the, the, the leaking of this, this slide, I suspect, didn't make the company very happy. Mm-hmm. But um, I think probably it made some of the people working on Delicious fairly happy um, because of the outroar it caused. And I just think probably many of them felt very, very, you know, content and, um, uh, I don't know what the word is, you know, kind of positively reinforced by all the positive energy that came out, came back from that. But, you know, I mean, I guess my suspicion here is that, that, that Yahoo, so the weird thing about this is some of these are really sensible decisions, you know, like actually for Yahoo to kind of focus on something that, it, you know, to, to look around at its properties, work out what's actually going to work for it, work out what it's prepared to invest in, invest in those. And, you know, I think every, Everyone thinks that's probably a sensible approach, along with you know finding up new new products. I think you just get this. I'm not sure they were quite aware what a kind of great big pile of crap they were going to stand in by <laughs> getting such a sort of totemic, like so, so totemic or iconic product of that particular period, where right. uh, you know the, the web seemed kind of full of things and kind of. I think I don't think they quite registered that. And I mean, whether or not I believe they've been looking around rigorously for people to sell it to as opposed to just sort of gradually. I mean, my sense of it is, in the end, they'll probably put it into maintenance mode, which at Yahoo means very limited engineering staff, um, right. uh, no new features, um, uh, just tick it, keep it ticking over, keep it going, and kind of either hope that it just becomes irrelevant over time or um, hope that someone comes along I wants to buy it off them. But, I, you know, I mean, and again, this is all conjecture. I have, like, almost, yes, as so. Uh, as Andrew says, like the, the attic on Doll's house. But it's, you know, again, I, I have to say this is conjecture. I really am not qualified to give, um, you know, I'm, 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 when I was working there, I wouldn't have been qualified to give a, a perspective on this one. And right. you know, I, no, I haven't been working there since months. I'm less qualified. It was pretty interesting that once this, this rumor went out, people started like, what about Flickr? What if everything goes? They throw everything. Well, Brian Horowitz bought for the company. Well, you know, um, I have a question for, for for Tom around that, actually. To me, what happened with the delicious thing, whether we think Yahoo's dead or not, I mean, there's millions of people, you know, mo- probably mostly in America who use Yahoo all the time and enjoy it. And we in the Valley love to, you know, poo-poo. It's not innovative enough, et cetera. But to your point, it is very heavily trafficked. But as regarding Delicious and other cloud-based services, you know, what's your view on that? I mean, they'll put it, you know, as we put more and more of our data and our sort of history of our lives and sort of give it out to companies to sort of hold for us and, and, and caretake for us. To me, that was what it's really a sign of. You know, like you said, Heather, people are like, oh, no, what happens if Flickr shuts down? What people if- right away were all about where else can we put your stuff, who backs it up, and a lot of people saying, I would pay for this because I want right. all this stuff. Yeah. And that's what's interesting to me. Which is exactly, by the way, in a, and I'm just going to bring around saying, no, this is one of Tom Coates' favorite topics. It's an interesting response to the Andrew Keene assertion 
that, you know, everything's <clears throat> not paid for. That all she of a sudden, it, yeah, yeah, I know I said it. It's like saying Heyman. Uh, <laughs> it's, you know, I mean, I, I, under, I understand. I understand you have a, a mixed audience, including children present. So I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't swear. <laughs> Voldemort. Anyway, I just just the, the these kinds of moments. You shall not be named. Yes. Right. These moments bring out this impetus of oh, we 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 really want to pay for this. Let us pay for this. Yeah, it's kind of a funny one. I mean, I think there's a whole range of things going on here. One of them is that, um, you know, I don't think anyone thinks, I don't think, I don't think anyone out there should be worried um, about Flickr to start off with. I don't think Flickr's going anywhere. Right. Again, you know, like I know lots of people who work there. Um, you know, I worked around the corner from them for years. Um, you know, Matthew Rothenberg and the engineering team, and they're, they're, you know, they're really good. They're really great people, and they remain really great people. You know, they, um, uh, but um, you know, they're not going anywhere at all. Like, so don't don't worry about that. I think the the legitimate, well, I think the legitimate concern with some of these things is, you know, with things like Delicious, I think maybe you might say Yahoo has a bit of a cloth ear, didn't really understand the reaction, did kind of just viewed it like a property rather than something that people had invested a lot of time. Time and energy in, and I think that clumsiness is what triggered people worrying about Flickr. That, that isn't they that, could see. Isn't, isn't that emblematic of of social software in general, though? Sort of that there's this company that creates this tool set, and not realizing how intimate and personal the users might yeah. feel about. It, right. No, I think I think it's a big problem with with many many large companies that haven't started off as being social is that fundamentally they're often utilities. They think of themselves as utilities or as publishers, and that's sort of somewhere in their DNA. Uh, and, you know, when you're a publisher or a utility, if people use it or don't use it, that's okay. If, if, you know, if you stop publishing or start publishing, that's okay. The, the users haven't invested their own time and their own energy into it. I think a lot of large companies, and I don't think Yahoo's alone in this, I think Google's right. the same, just don't understand that, uh, when they build these things, it's about relationships. It's about people trusting you. It's about pe- people feeling like they have a positive relationship with the company and that you'll treat and respect what they've made and created with you. Um, uh, and I, you know, so like, yeah, I think that is a, I think that is a problem for companies like Yahoo and Google. Like, they just don't quite understand. Well, basically, they don't understand humans. Uh, and to some extent, I suspect they don't. To some extent, I mean, again, not wanting to be negative, I don't think they even like humans. No, I mean, so I such as the most way tech companies or most social software companies I think, or most large. Companies? No, 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 no. I think, I think. Um, oh God! Oh, this is you're really drawing out all of my prejudices here. I think yeah, um, that's what heavy, we're here for. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I think a lot of companies that are public and have to meet quarter of a quarter um, mm-hmm. expectations, uh, and who are have a lot of MBAs in them, who are. Trained to stop thinking about people and to start thinking about numbers. I think any company that that has so, that ha, that by dint of its size has to have so many layers between the user and the, the upper management. I think kind of inevitably they lose track of of the users at the, at the bottom of it. And of course, with Google, which is obviously a very heavily engineering led culture, these are not people who necessarily you know really liked <laughs> really liked people very much to start off with. Yeah. Um, so, 
it's hard to scale that sort of, do you think, do you think it's doable to be able to scale that sense of, because even with Flickr, as we mentioned with Yahoo, some would argue it's not the largest, most successful bit of Yahoo, right? We struggle a lot here on TumbleVision talking about, can you scale that sense of relationship and investment in with large public companies? Uh, social software or tech. I mean, I don't. You don't need the right answer here. It's just something that I was just wondering. Well, I mean, I think it's. I think it's very difficult in some ways. I, I, I mean, I. I definitely think there. I mean, I was talking to someone the other day. I think I was talking to Simon uh, Willison and Natalie Down, who are doing this lanyard project, which I'm kind of advising on. And uh, they would have. Can you explain what lanyard is? Sorry. Can you oh yeah, lanyard is a lanyard is a site where you can go and see what what conferences your friends are going to that's the simplest bit you basically log in with twitter and it shows you if, if any of your friends are going to other conferences um uh, that's that's the simple version the longer version is you also can put up lots of information about talks you can have a speaker profile conference organizers can you know source speakers it's really good but it's really fun i wouldn't have got involved in it if it wasn't but um, and i'd recommend people look at it. it's lanyard without an a at the end um so yes go and check that out but um yeah i was simon was talking uh to me yesterday and he had a conversation with someone about these kind of relationships and he said like when you're setting up a company when it's at its earlier stages you know there is no limit to the amount of kind of personal conversation and as you would say tumbling that you should do to kind of make people feel at home um you know work out what they need sort out the you know uh all the features that they might want as you grow you kind of have to think about how you you scale that engagement because you know when you're Flickr and you have five billion users, no five, sorry, not five billion users. That's impractical. Five billion photos, um, uh, and you know tens of millions of users. Obviously, you can't spend your time welcoming every new user that comes on. So you know, clearly, there are balances. You know, there is there is there is stuff that stuff that will have to go as you grow. But I think fundamentally, for me, it's it's less about that personal relationship of actively talking to everyone that comes in. And more about like being able to assert a clear relationship, you know, uh, um, say things that the, that your users trust, um, uh, you know, um, make them understand that you do care. You know, well, actually, number one, care about your users, like, care about what they want, understand that you can't meet everyone's needs, you know, recognize that you're going to piss some people off, but you know, try and be clear and upfront and honourable. And I think these things work out. Does that make sense or? <laughs> uh, totally. I think it makes sense. I think it's, yeah. as companies grow, um, they do tend to lose sight because they do have, I think the, the distinction you said about sort of public market um, companies that are, you know, measured quarterly on growth. Like we have this, this sort of growth over, you know, it's like a quality over quantity issue in a way. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I really, I really think. I mean, it's. I don't think people understand how kind of hectic this stuff is. Like, I mean, most of the most of the decisions that come out of large, very large companies, you know, almost by dint, almost legally, you know, if they've if they've structured their company the way most companies structure themselves, they kind of have to, you know, always go for short term shareholder value. It's a very rare company. Right that manages to kind of assert 
a sort of medium term even um, trajectory that actually is you know but that scale you know so, so and, hard and, what, and what you're talking about tom are the limits the sort of legal financial structural limits of how businesses are run but i'm kind of interested as somebody who knows so much about just product building that if you were going to look only at the limitations of the software and the people themselves and you got to play outside of the legal financial crap that we, you know, that right now corporations run with, what would be the best way to scale a more tumult environment? Because that's something we've really want to want to explore. And it seems to me my early guess is, but I don't have necessarily any software answer. I'd love to know your thoughts and Kevin, you too. <laughs> How do you create an environment or um, a platform that inherently increases the likelihood of scaling the number of tumblers so that people will themselves yeah. keep exactly. ex- expanding the human uh, feel of the, of the place? I think there's a whole range of things there that are important but i mean um for me it's interesting when you look at companies and you look at the ones that have the best relationship with users and produce really great products they're not necessarily out there talking to people all the time it's just that when they do talk to people there seems to be some kind of commonality of understanding you know like um when apple talks to its customers and apple and apple's customers talk to talk to them back you know it, it but it seems to be that they're at some level based on a common understanding you know that apple likes its customers that apple people like using their products that they want to build the best thing possible and that um you know and the and all of these kind of bits of philosophy spread out and the people who are buying the products pick up on that a lot Mm. you know and they I mean, I don't, you know, like, I don't know if this is particularly true. I certainly feel a relationship with Apple of, of sort of trust, which is a bizarre one, actually, because if I look at some of the decisions they make, they're very, there's some, there's some things there you could question a lot, you know, of asserting controls in various places. And a lot of, a lot of kind of you know, people at the Linux nerdy end of the spectrum are very resistant to Apple because of all of the controls they put in at that level. But the other end of this is, is those people who, you know, basically feel, you know, like with the MP3 stuff a few years ago in DRM, that, you know, people were saying Apple had all this, this, this DRM and they had it because they were trying to assert control. And you cannot, you can make that case. And then a couple of years later, Steve Jobs is out there trying to get rid of the DRM because it seems pointless to him. It's, it's holding back the business. It doesn't seem to make any sense. People can circumvent it, you know. Now, to me, that's something that I trust, that in the end, he's trying at least, they are trying at least to build products that I will want to use, that they want to use, um, that where the quality shines through. But, but Tom, is that because that, they're to listening to you in a conversational way, or is that because they just happen to be like you? Because Jobs is also famous for talking about not making what other people want. Yeah, no, I think that, that's right. I actually, I'm a big believer in not making what other people want. Um, uh, I, I think <laughs> there's a, I know, well, Yes, as the success of Fire Eagle may, I may point towards. But um, uh, well, no, no, you're making uh, things they don't realize they want yet. I mean, that's yeah, even- that's ahead uh, of its time. I was going to well, say no, the same thing. That's ahead of its time. Yeah, that's, that's I not, think that's that's the difference. That's the goal, right? The goal that you've got. If, you know, if you do listen to people and what they what they ask for, I mean, look honestly, if you look at TechCrunch on any given day and you look at what people out there are talking about, the le- the level of imagination that most people are out there evidencing in product design. 
It's pitiful. You know, they're, they're doing almost nothing of interest. It's like, you know, a sort of variant dig clone five years old, a different RSS reader, you know. Um, yeah. I, it, it's, you know, it's infuriating. Um, and I, I, when I look at the companies that are extraordinarily, you know, I mean, there's sort of mix. You find I've, I've talked about this a lot with Matt Jones about where, where in this spectrum do you want to be? Do you want to be the person who spots the, the right ideas in the right territories and builds the, the early products in the area that make everything else possible? but then basically you don't make any money at all or you know uh, that everyone else builds on top on top of um or do you want to be at the other end you know do you want to be looking around at something and going i can make that five percent better or turn it into a huge financial powerhouse matt jones said which i thought was interesting that at berg they're thinking about like being like in the uk there's a brand called habitat which you know which was a conran yes. conran's brand conran shop yep. and he basically yeah took these um furniture like designer for furniture and tried to bring it to the mass market and i think you know that was that's that's where berg kind of situates themselves um right you know and i think that's ideal but yeah i mean i but if you look at again apple as i think i I mean it's so easy to talk i could talk about them forever but i look at apple and the thing that i see that makes them distinct from uh from certainly from yahoo probably from google is that that they think they make big bets on things in the future they're often right they build things in the background and they don't launch them until they've got the product right and the atmosphere and the environment right it's a very different model to pretty much any other anyone else in the industry and it's actually not a very web-like model i think that it shows in some of the problems they have on the web that they they kind of think in this slightly kind of long-term fashion but you know it's really good you know looking towards the future seeing the direction where are we supposed to be where will where will we be in three or four years time what do we have to build to make that possible. I've got, I mean, one other thing I want to say on this one, if you trace, like, I was saying to someone yesterday about the iPad, the success of the iPad. If you look at the iPad, huge hit, endless iPad sold, and now you trace back all the things that had to happen that Apple have built over the last sort of 10 years to get to the iPad. Um, uh, and what you find is you've got, obviously, the investment in touchscreens, you've got the, the iPhone had to come first, the iPad, iPod had to come first, right. you had the App Store, had to come first you had um that means you had itunes which had to come first uh you know and or you, you trace could it say back the and the component yeah i mean well just, That's I, I mean you could say that like, and that would be a pointer towards them spotting the future but what i'm talking about is the actual physical things that mm. they had to work through to get to this point and mm. i now today they would not be an, an ipad could not work without itunes and the app store and without the deals they made with um, uh, content producers and the developer community that they generated, right? They 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 put laid foundations down ten years ago, um, which they probably didn't know exactly what direction it would take them in, but they knew that they were the right bits of foundation work to do, and they're able, therefore, to keep building on top of that and moving in the right direction. Many times I see in companies. Uh, a you know, I have just read on TechCrunch this morning that people search is a big idea. Therefore, let's all go off and build people search. You know, and you're like, well, that's you. Sh- you should have started that a year ago. If you, yes, even if you know what that phrase means, which you mostly don't, or more than, or way more than that, to get to the idea of real yeah, exactly. people I mean, search, like, it, right? Think of the layers that have to be in there to understand people search, right? Social graph yeah. connections, relate, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
It's not just exactly. an algorithm. And I think, yeah, I mean, and I've had some bizarre conversations with people in large companies. I had this brilliant conversation with someone, and I said, what we really need in this company is an idea of the future. Two or three years. What are we aiming for? What's the aspiration? And he said, basically, how... How was it even possible to have that kind of strategic insight? This is a huge company I'm talking about here. Mm-hmm. And, and a very senior management said that it was essentially not possible to have any idea of what the, what the web would be like or the technology industry would be like in two to three years, which well, I that, think is probably the most ridiculous thing. I've that's, that's indicative that's of the kind of person who gets that job, though, isn't it? If you were yeah. the kind of person who could see a few years in the future, and I think we all know lots of those people, just because we've been working on the web so long, and that's – they're by nature. I mean, is any – I can't tell you a single person I know who was working on the web in 96, 98, who runs a big – thing because they because the nature of making new stuff seems to be to not work in leading massive massive ventures because i don't think you see that far ahead when that's what you're doing generally uh i think that maybe because i think in business today i think the hardest thing it's what's interesting tom that you said is guessing the future or seeing the roadmap to a future innovation state a lot of people say you know 10 years out is easy in a, in a weird way, right? Two to three years is actually the hardest or three to five, right? Because that has to be grounded in reality, right? So very often to me, someone who says they couldn't see three to five years out, first of all, I agree with you, Heather. It's a person who's just, they don't want to see. They've got, they, they, they're not the kind of person yeah. who, that, that's just not their role in life or their job. Or, and good or bad, there are people who innovate and there are people who operationalize, right? Um, and that's overly simplistic. But if you think about it, two to three years, some people say three to five years, depending on the size of the company, that's sort of the hardest thing to get because it's got to be grounded in reality. Look, you, we could talk about it related to Fire Eagle, right? Like we all know yeah. that location-based services are going to be where it's at. What's the instantiation of that or how does that look and feel it takes a lot of iteration and timing and the oh, right yeah, things absolutely. being in the right place, right? So that's what's interesting. But you can see the trend to say that you can't. Well, I mean, the thing is, there's two things. I mean, this is the thing, isn't it? Sorry. Well, I mean, number one, I think not everyone can see it. And I, and I, I don't think it's like, you know, I, I would stand here and say to you that not that I, I am particularly astonishingly brilliant in this regard, but that there are processes and thinking and work that any, any sense of intelligent person could do uh, yeah. to look at what's going on in the industry and come out with um, uh, uh, you know, a reasonably good sense of what the future the next couple of years, what the major big things are likely to be. Now, you're not going to be right. You know, I Absolutely. Think, you know, like, you say, say, say without a doubt, you know, you're not going to be 100% right in any respect. Um, but if you can well, spot well, Tom, something... Tom, given you know, that you've just said that, why don't we ask you, okay, right now, two to three years out, what's obvious? What do you think? Oh, I mean, interestingly, I I haven't actually done much much particular thinking about that kind of stuff recently. I mean, I, I'm kind of interested in some of the stuff that was um, grinding around a couple of years ago that, that um, hasn't resurfaced again. There are these I've noticed this trend that new technology waves, um, uh, the same thing recurs every three years. Um, like what? Uh, and goes through um, like real time technology, like geolocation. These things, um, all uh, like geolocation. I remember probably eight years ago seeing Chris Heathcote speaking at ETA talking about all the various ways you could capture someone's location. And he came up with like 40 um, from a mobile phone. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and you know, and what you could do with it then. And everyone was like, "That's great, Chris. We, you know, lovely, lovely, you know, yes. well done." Uh, you know, what are we going to um, do with it? Uh, yeah, what are we going to do with it? And then um, for me, you know, uh, it all started to come into 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 perspective when the actual mainstream phones were like um, coming with. Uh, Always on network access um, and built-in GPS units. That that seems to now point towards this, this is going to be a big deal, you know. And actually, you know, when we started working on Fire Eagle, it was when the first Python-based uh, Nokia phones with built-in GPS units were coming out. So it seemed really likely to us that this was a, an emerging area that people hadn't really thought about the implications of. But I mean, you know, like but those things. They come through two or three year cycles, and then each cycle they they kind of rise up a little bit higher, or they don't. If they, right. uh, and one time at some point they break, you know, they, they kind of crest, the wave crests, and then they kind of splash all over the industry. Um, and you know, location. I think with Fire Eagle in particular, we were a couple of years. We were on the wave before the wave that would hit. Now the question is, what do you do if you're a company and you have something? that you, you can look at and say, yes, you know, we agree, this is right. There is going to be something big in location, you know, um, uh, but we're a bit early, you know. What, 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 is, what is your role then? Like, from my perspective, if you're a very large company um, uh, and you find yourself at the point where people are starting to say location is a big deal and you've got some products that are interesting in that respect but haven't quite hit, that, hit home yet, then you invest in them because, you know, they're still going to be big in two, three years' time. But, you know, that's not how everyone thinks about this. So in terms of the other things going on at the moment, I remember doing a piece of work um, a couple of years ago, um, which I thought I, I found incredibly useful. I still think there's a load of potential for real-time technology with um, the PubSub Hubbub and um, uh, XMPP. Uh, Seth Fitzsimmons, who I used to work with on Fire Eagle, was doing amazing work with XMPP. Um, uh, the idea of um, data being fired around the Internet in pretty much real-time in instant messenger style ways or using webhooks or whatever i still think there are enormous range of product possibilities around that that we have really um explored sufficiently um uh as we've everyone's got a bit overwhelmed with twitter and kind of saying twitter equals real-time stuff i think there's a lot particularly even just taking apis and um uh and stopping them being kind of poll based and start them being messaging based, I think. Over the and can you can you give it, just like, for people who aren't coders a little sense of what that means when when the right, you're not yeah, sure. pull based? I mean, uh, so let me let me you know, I'm not a coder either. So like, I mean, my 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 role in all of this, um, uh, you know, I draw. I say to people, I wave my hand when I draw pictures for a living, and there's a certain certain truth to that. It's probably understating <laughs> my extraordinary talent, but um, uh, <laughs> the um, this is dry English humor, so don't take it. So <laughs> um, uh, the, um, if one Brit and one Canadian here, so we'll probably get okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm worried about other people on the anyway. Um, you know, I, I think for me, I think one of the things that, that that's come out is the longer I've spent in the industry, the more I sort of gradually form this philosophical model of the way I think things are moving and the way I think things are going. And part of it is um, connected data. You know, eight, so sites and services talking to one another. Part of it is physical objects in the real world, reading to and writing, uh, reading from and re writing to the internet. Part of it is the potential for human beings to collaborate through the internet in various new and exciting ways, to generate new things that didn't exist in the world, whether that's huge repositories of photos or you know actual objects. 
part of it is the massive like improvement in the last five years of, of interfaces that we can on the web and 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 the disconnection you know and the fact that now we can have appliances um tablet applications desktop applications all backing onto the same network where the data can flow around so i mean like you know the more you think about the more you start finding the edges of your philosophical view the more you start spotting um how a new technology that comes along can kind of fix or improve something that's broken or doesn't work properly and one Kevin- of the things Sorry, go ahead. Finish, finish, Tom. Keep going. I, if I'm talking too much, you know, but I, I mean, I just say, but the, the thing that I think is interesting here is mostly the way that sites and services on the internet talk to each other at the moment is through uh, REST-based polling APIs, which is to say one site hits a URL the, um, on the other site. The other site delivers a chunk of information. The first site can read it. And the... Um, that is, you can't tell if anything changes. So for the for the site to know, say, say Facebook is talking to Twitter. Uh, Facebook needs to go and check if anything's changed on Twitter every few seconds and hope, you know, that that something has changed. If nothing has changed, it's wasted. You know, it's it's query and Flickr's had to deal with another question which it didn't have any new answer to. Much better for Flickr to be able to ping Facebook every time something changes. Um, it takes less kind of um, technical effort, Which, it's less costly, and, you know. In a weird way, better. what you just described uh, of the site sending out, here's what's going on, is like a website version of us on Twitter. Or in a way, when you think about Doc Searles, who was on a few weeks ago, talking about VRM, vendor relations management, the idea that you as an individual would say to everybody you deal with, here's what I want from you. Rather than everyone coming at you, yeah. which is kind of the existing marketing style dynamic the culture's had for a long time, which is everyone coming at its target and trying to sell it one way or another. And the way you're describing the technology, it sounds like a parallel to that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I think actually, if you think about if you think about a data Twitter, if you think about um, physical objects with sensors in them. Um, uh, sites and services uh, all around the web. Um, any object that could um, stick out information when something changes, like a stock ticker or anything, communicating in a Twitter-like way, dumping out a little kind of particular blob of data that anyone who happens to be subscribed or wants to can get from that and react, then you can start thinking about this as a a very responsive, you know, system. You know, you can actually almost see these kind of impulses, like. We used to talk about the internet as a, like a, a, a nervous system of the world, but it was kind of really weird nervous system where each neuron kind of asked the next one along. Anything happened yet? Anything happened yet? No? Okay. Right. It's fine. You know, um, uh, now we're actually moving to one where the nervous system kind of, you know, receives a ping from the, from the next thing along and reacts mm-hmm. immediately, you know, like, uh, and I think genuinely, particularly now we're talking about this kind of world where network connectivity is spread everywhere. I mean, like, can you imagine 10 years ago, someone saying to you, you will have a little device uh, about the same weight as a paperback book um, uh, that you can put 5,000 books into and has permanent, ongoing, free internet access for life in it. Uh, we'd have been stunned, but it's it's the Kindle. It's out now. It's $100. Um, right. You know, 10, 20 years from now, like we're talking about that level of, of, te- of, of um, connectivity, network access like being pennies to make the chips for and you know infinitesimal 
or money to stick into pretty much every appliance out there. So once you've got things, you know, that are, they don't have to do much. They can just like measure the temperature or see if a plug's turned on or, you know, um, uh, register if gas is there or do a smoke, be a smoke alarm. But instead of just broadcasting that information locally, they're also depositing it on the internet where it can be used. And because it's a sensor-based thing, they can only trigger when something actually changes. And then they can send a ping, like a Twitter message, you know, only just in data, that the whole rest of the world can react to, inspire to. And when you think about like that bit where you touch the end of your finger against something, and that impulse is going all the way up your arm and into your spine, up into your brain, and then being processed and registered. Uh, and it feels... Imagine that kind of sensation, that kind of action going on across the world, you know, from smoke alarm to fire stone, to you know, to blog, to Twitter, to um, sprinkler system, to your neighbor's houses. So, I, that's that's the magic of the real time stuff. So the, I, I agree. I mean, I love that kind of stuff because the real time stuff is exciting. Taking our glass half full hat off, there are plenty of people who are going to hear that and say, "Oh my God, we already have too much information and information overload." Sure. Is that is that nervous system going to make me? Um, more be more useful to me or less useful or so you know explain how that wouldn't just be sort of more information but maybe better information the, the role i think the role of the product person the role of of any creative technologist out there at the moment whether that i mean and i, I need to be clear about this i i really don't think about product people as separate from engineers i don't think of them separate from coders or i don't think them as as, as design centered Mm-hmm. Um, uh, people out there who want to make new things, their role. People who make are, stuff, right? People who make stuff. The role they have is to go and spot the possibilities um, of the technology that's out that's in the world to make people's lives more interesting, better, more efficient, whatever. Spot the problems that may come along with that and alleviate them. And if they can't alleviate them, then one will use them. So you know, like I think if. You looked back, I've asked, you know, classical reference for you, as I know you wanted one. Yay! <laughs> yes! You know, Plato. Woo-hoo. Plato, uh-huh. 2,500 years ago. Plato is very down on writing. He doesn't like writing. He likes speech. He thinks that writing allows you to be duplicitous, to say inappropriate things, not, not to speak truthfully. He thinks it's very suspicious. Um, you know, pretty much every technology that's come along, there have been anxieties about. Now, that's not to say that anxieties aren't legitimate. It's to say that sometimes... That in order for them to take off, we normally find a way around the negative bits. We spot the problems, and the next wave of technology is there to fix them. Um, you know, like we have to remember that uh, um, you know we've we've all dealt with you know we've probably got email overload, and what actually happens is something else turns up, like Twitter or whatever, and we find ourselves like trying to remove ourselves from using e- email and moving into other other systems. I was talking to my um my parents' extended family over Christmas and I revealed to them much of their horror that I cannot stand phone calls that I <laughs> find being rung up on a phone call unbelievably annoying. Um, cause you, the person who's calling me doesn't know what I'm doing. I'm probably busy. Um, they, they want to yap on about some old crap I don't care about. Um, uh, but I can't tell until I answer the phone. If I don't, don't answer the phone. I'm being rude. Can you imagine? Like, they ring me up and they want to talk to me at any given time. I could be like, you know, I love doing that. Anything. Yes. But if I don't answer, I'm being rude. You know, Jesus. I, I mean, it's like, 
Now, ten well, years because ago, you you, know, you talk in a different world, and the world there, and it's like you're not visiting their world anymore. I just want to get a chance to pull Kevin Marks in here, who's been just. I'm going to guess it's just be silent because he feels Tom is saying everything he believes. <laughs> I, 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 I always like listening to Tom. That's that's part of that's part of the the wonder is that we, I mean, we do we do bickering about about some stuff, but I think you know yeah. the, the the point is that being able to see. The, the sort of being able to see the future thing, there's, there's a couple of bits, facets to that. One is that um, you start to see patterns. You see stuff coming around. You see things and like, you, you sort of you can project the dots. And there's, you know, there's the, the sort of Singularity Institute point of view of like everything's accelerating. So we can know that in you know, two years' time we'll have machines this much faster, this much more RAM. So stuff that takes you know, 100 cycles now will take one cycle then. Therefore, we can do that kind of extrapolation. Um, but the other half of it is... But we will connect things in ways we hadn't thought of before, um, and yeah. that, that that's what comes and blows up the companies. And that's the bit I think that's the bit that the sort of your your middle manager was saying. Well, we don't know what's going to happen because he's probably been sh- you know shell shocked by all the things that came along and disrupted his like nice three year plans before. Right. Yes, that's a good point. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, so, like no one knows the future for certain, and you have to be responsive and you have to change and move. But I mean, like. I think it's interesting that, that, you know, Google's big mission statement was, you know, organize the world's information. Now, frankly, can you imagine a scenario ever hmm. in the history of world, world where organizing the world's information wouldn't bring with it some kind of value and or power? Like, of right. course it's going to. You know, there's, mm-hmm. it's like it, as a mission statement, you know, being the best at doing that is a shortcut to everything. Right. Well, it's, it's 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 organize the world's information and make it universally available or something like that. And that's, that's the yeah. other half of it. It's just like we're not just organizing this for us. We want to make sure everyone gets to see it. Um, and the, one of the weird things about Google is that that is cited all the time. It's not like some random mission statement. It's something they actually believe in. Um, a lot of the mission statements yeah. are like fluffy, make the world better type ones. But that one is, no, here's a thing we do. Um, and you can justify a project if it's doing something along those lines, whether it's like, I think we should scan all the books and all the libraries in the world. Um, yeah. And they'll go, oh, yeah. yeah. That fits the mission. We can do that. Yeah, I um, think organizing information yeah, no, think, is very concrete. But organizing, as you pointed out, Tom, people aren't are, are like uh, just kind of necessary speed bumps on the way to information. Sometimes, <laughs> if that's your goal, <laughs> right? Whose goal is to organize the world's people? That's evidently sort of Mark Zuckerberg's. I don't think he stated the mission that way, but I I would restate his mission that way. I don't know how much he thinks about the people. I agree with you. I don't think it's a very people-centered piece of, you know, a platform. But um, he's, he's, he puts it as like um, making people more open to one another. That if, 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 if when, when Mark gets philosophical, that's, that's kind of where he goes with that, is, is making it easier for people to, to communicate with each other and making them more open. That, that's, that's their sort of, sort of slightly weird agenda. Yeah, I, I've, never, I've never been very keen on that one. I think that, I think that kind of at some level... Uh, slightly misses the point. I mean, there's a big yes. discussion about privacy. I've spent a long time with a high regal work and geolocation stuff, talking to privacy people. Uh, and Dana Boyd, as well as the legal, legal types, uh, the whole See, range. That was your problem. Uh, you actually talked to people about privacy ahead of time. They just built it. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's interesting. I'm teasing, isn't it? I'm teasing because, but that was I mean, a very like, different approach. No, no, right? but it's an interesting point. It's, it's an interesting point, actually, because I, I think I can say with Without, without a question, without question, that we were unbelievably sensitive to privacy issues with Fire Yes, we were trying to do absolutely yeah. the best possible thing, and actually, 
Can you just um, quickly, Tom, before we go any further, uh, explain okay, to everyone what sorry. Fire Eagle is and what it what it does? Yeah. Okay. Well, Fire Eagle um, uh, it was a project that we started working on a few years ago at Yahoo, and uh, before uh, Foursquare and Goala and all these services exploded onto the scene. Uh, and uh, it was basically a way for you to sh- share your location with various different services. So, you know, the best, the easiest way to think about this is a switchboard. You know, you'd get it's something that something that could update your location on Fire Eagle and then it would send it out to all the other services that might use it in various ways. And we gave people loads of privacy controls. We said, you know, um, you can choose how much information you're sharing with any of these services, your exact location, your neighborhood, city or state. You can hide hide with one button and then information will still come in but it won't go out you can delete any of any and all of your information at any time you can rescind uh, your permissions for any given site um and you know our goal was to make it possible for you to capture your location in one place and then make the entire internet react um to where you were make it better you know in the same way that the social network gives you um context on the entire internet by showing it through the lens of your friends, we would be able to um, show you the entire internet through the lens of location. Um, and we, but, you know, it was very early days. So this was, I mean, I think probably it launched three years ago, something like that. Um, uh, two or three years ago. Um, and uh, that's like a thousand years. I know. Now. I know. I'm, in, I'm, in, in, both, uh, no. in both analog and heterosexual time. Actually, gay time. You know what I mean? Like, gay, gay time is so short and so contracted. Like, a two-year gay relationship is like a 10-year gay relationship. Really? I learned something new tonight. I don't know. Time seems to drag on from anyway. So, you know, the idea was that we would make it possible for people to kind of incorporate location to every service in the web, you know. And we we were – but we were very – all the questions people were asking then were really, really big questions, you know. Uh, there's those moments where you're going, and this goes back to my earlier point about the kind of roles and responsibilities of product designers when it comes to things like information overload or whatever. When you're doing location, you know, you're thinking about really big issues. You're thinking about, am I accidentally going to get somebody raped? Am I going to get somebody stabbed? Am I going to get someone burgled? Am I going to reveal the location of political dissidents? You know, these are really, really huge questions. Um, and, you know, you, and I, I, I can admit quite cheerfully to spending time at night, you know, like sleepless nights worrying about these things um, and spending a lot of time talking with people. I mean, you know, and uh, having endless conversations with people from the EFF who'd say things like, oh, you haven't thought of this one, though. What if a man gets a phone and installs Fire Eagle tracking software on it and then puts it in his wife's car and then drives off, you know, uh, and you're like, well, I mean, that's legitimate. It's a, it's a potential problem it's there are easier ways to do it you can go and buy like a gps unit and just stick it in the car and come back and see the track logs but you know that's uh, what they uh, teach you you to do in law school by the way it's just an extension of of youthful jewishness imagine how bad this would be okay (laughs) and then you get points for it in school (laughs) oh that's funny (laughs) but it's true that's what you're trained to do you're right you're right worst case scenario is all about that right and the most convoluted worst case scenario but of course it does happen but then it's talmudic (laughs) and and then they write a contract that includes that as a as the sort of primary thing they're thinking about as well oh Oh, yeah yeah. because that's their currency is i thought of a worse thing than you thought of well wait till you hear the horror i've got of 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I Tom, mean, you're saying, so well, so all law school students are, are all Jewish people. Pretty much. And you're just saying, Tom, yeah, well, can, you just, can you just make this thing? And then you're not, you're not so worried about it. Why do you think you're not so no, worried I mean, about let, it? Let me be clear on this one. Like, so many of these conversations with other people were um, asked initially saying we no we don't want to do that we want it to be more secure more 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 polite more private privacy conscious and uh unfortunately i mean this is one thing people never really realize is that they think large companies are full of people who want to kind of brutally attack their privacy on the whole large companies are full of people who are incredibly um, risk averse and um, worried about litigation and so they (laughs) Oh, the last people you should be worrying about, on the whole, um, about privacy violations, with the possible exception of fi- Facebook, who do seem to take things a little bit more fast than loose than anyone else. Um, but uh, it's why the uh, irony is on the then... whole. Yeah. On the whole, you know, the large companies are safe. It's the little ones you need to worry about. They're the ones that will, um, you know, get information from you and then sell them to, like, you know, Nigerian well, spammers or whatever. Well, large companies have have certain accountability either because of their exactly, scale yeah. or, or legally um yeah totally and uh, they I mean, are incredibly risk averse the, the irony is today that the but, biggest leadership mantra in big organizations today is learn how to fail often you know they're trying to yeah treat, yeah, yeah, yeah they're yeah. trying to fail fast you know they're trying to embrace it's the, total bullshit i know it'll never happen I that's know. i mean i can tell you without any doubt that what they when they, they say that all the time and it's total crap if you do something, why, and, is, it, why is it in our pockets, Tom? Why is it? Why is it crap, Tom? It's crap for multiple reasons. I mean, one of them is because they don't do it. They don't actually. You know, if you fail, fail. far, they don't go. Well done. They go like that was shit. What did you do that for? Um, <laughs> right. You don't. You don't get you know, rewarded for because, like failing fast, though they want. It turns out you don't get rewarded for failing fast. Right. Um, bizarrely, what what you get rewarded for is producing PowerPoint presentations. And circulating them around upper management. Um, no, see what you've done. You've got me. You've got me venting. I'm breathing. I'm breathing. <laughs> That's okay. Breathe. I'm breathing. Breathe. Everything's fine. Happy place. Rainbows are surrounding me. Um, okay. At least you're not the crazy person like I am who tries to go into those big companies and teach them how to sort of try to learn how to fail fast. So who's the one who gets bloody? <laughs> I do. But at least I'm doing it as an outsider. <laughs> yeah. No, I, yeah. Let's just have I, a, a quick shot. I want to go back a minute. Sorry. Oh, Tom, I'm trying to keep things moving here. We've had an hour on the show. We've got about another 10, 15 Sorry, minutes. Sorry, I need to go back to one of the earlier bits and just wrap it up. And I, okay. I promise I'll, I promise I'll wrap it up. You have a minute to uh, wrap it up because there are too many things we need to ask you about. Yeah, yeah. I love this. The conversation was about... Um, and then you have to come back so we can ask you 50 things. Maybe next week. Would you like to oh, be our sure, first no problem, double sure. header I love, guest? I love talking. Um, <laughs> Plato was your uh, friend. You Except her. on the phone hang to your on, family. Yes. You told me to be fast. Yes, apart from the phone to your family. I'm going to look for that play. For a minute, though. you've used up 15 seconds. Um, uh, you asked earlier about like um, information overload, and and this is the trend I've been trying to circle back to. Um, and product designers uh, and privacy. Now, I don't believe that we're in a position where privacy is ending. I don't believe that at all. I think it's a complete um, a red herring. Uh, and I think when um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg talks about like you know getting rid of like making everything more open and when eric schmidt talks about getting rid of privacy and these kind of things they're just really missing the point totally um dana's point here is is legitimate dana boyd she says basically that there are things absolutely that the teenagers and everyone around us today doesn't want everyone to know about the, the big difference the big distinction is um uh that some things that used to be de facto 
private because they were done in the privacy room at home no longer have to be. And I think this is the really core issue with all of this stuff. Um, things change inevitably. Many things in the past used to work in the way they did because of constraints placed on the world. Like, for example, if you're listening to music at home, there is no effective way to make everyone in the neighborhood know what it is without really annoying them. Um, now you can stick it on a website. Is that a violation of your privacy? No. Why not? Because you don't care. Because it's fine. Because it's completely reasonable. Well, also um, because actually, our culture, our culture, you know, shifts as a as a performer to sell out of performance art. For me, this has been something I've been pretty engaged in for a while. The very it's almost becoming harder to find that edge because so much of uh, a certain kind of art has been about taking what was private and making it public, yeah. and that that line is moving. So I've really mm. been saying for a while that I think we're all kind of performance artists now in the act of placing something in the public. But when you place it there, you choose, and you choose to place it there, it's a different thing than what Dana's talking about. Dana's concerns are, I don't know, I don't know. I, don't know. I, I mean, think are, are not about when you're doing it. It's when other If you go outside and you're wearing clothes, if you go outside and you're wearing clothes, are you a performance artist? I think... I mean, to some extent, yes. <laughs> you can possibly. You. Yeah, theoretically. Possibly. If you're not wearing clothes, you're more likely to be. <laughs> Put it this way. But I, but I would, what I would say is if you were a woman in 1929 and you wore pants a little bit, like when you're in the edge of a thing changing and you start doing it because it's a new, we're in a moment where the context is shifting. So you just feel it heavily from everybody, I guess is what I'm saying. I mean, I don't think we will in, in short order in the same way that email once felt like a remarkable thing. Everyone had an email address. You had a kind of intimacy with them and that's not there anymore because everybody has one. The social so, contract of what is acceptable versus what isn't acceptable and what's performative and what isn't is constantly shifting, right? I, I so you're make, saying clothes versus yeah. pants. And so, yeah, I, I, I think that that makes it interesting. So we've got the about... the point I'm trying to make here is... Sorry, you go. You can one more sentence with that. The point you're trying to make here is <laughs> pretend think, we're a BBC game yeah, show. The very one short, short bit here. The point I'm trying to make is that... Um, you know, the world does change, things evolve, things move. Bad things happen as part of that because context shift around them. Negative things emerge. Information overload, anxieties about privacy. But actually, on the whole, um, the products that alleviate those problems or find the right balance between, you know, what people actually want out in public and things that they're conscious about and worried about, in the end, the best products that the best ideas sort of tend to win. I mean, it, I'm not saying it's perfect by any means, but you know, the ex extremes, the edges, they kind of go away. And we find that we, we manage to chart a course between the new possibilities of technologies and the new anxieties of technologies. And that's what I think the role of the product person is. That's the role of the product designer, it's the role of the engineering team. And I think if you do it right, if you're able to look at things like privacy and information overload as problems that you fix in your product, or as opportunities for new features um, that make your product uh, distinguish it from other products, I think then, you're, then you actually are doing a good thing. Privacy is a feature. You can make privacy better. You can make mm, privacy like better. So speaking of privacy, that leads right to weighing in, and this will have to quit, be quick because I would like to hit uh, the Goldman Sachs and the Russian uh, mafia Facebook <laughs> investment. Of course. <laughs> 
Um, well, they invested. They invested a while ago. Is that when you say there is a new investment? They're part uh, of the Goldman Invest Tax Investment. But I, but because you hit privacy, I think it makes sense to segue first into a short amount of time on uh, WikiLeaks and Assange. Speaking of um, of privacy and sort of this yeah. newness that uh, that you know, I think Clay Sharkey is is articulating well about sort of them. They really are a new kind, showing a new kind of era for global media where there isn't an if an attachment to a city uh to a country and in a way it might be similar to the kind of um people we were talking about who tend to innovate product who are less affiliated to if you want to talk about google or facebook like a country uh because in that sense they can think more globally and their commitment is to users and less often to an existing structure um is there a way in which it sorry, it just occurred to me? I don't know how that that segues into or that meshes with all the privacy stuff that WikiLeaks and the prosecution of Assange brings up. But you were saying, okay, you can design a product with more privacy. Is there a way a product could be helping Assange now <coughs> or Wiki uh, the WikiLeaks issue? Could you could you say that question again, uh, like you know, shorter? Because my brain isn't good enough. <laughs> No, I was just, uh, I, I think we should put the blame for that one on me. That was very kind and British of you to try to take it on, on you. I'll take it all. <laughs> it was not articulated well. Do you think you were just talking about uh, your role as a product designer about making privacy better, about that being maybe an asset? Do you think there's something product, if you look at the, the anxieties or the issues that WikiLeaks and the Assange prosecution bring up, is there a role products could have in making that better? Right. I think there is some, I think, I think we have to, the WikiLeaks thing is incredibly complicated. And um, uh, I think anyone who treats this as a simple issue, whether it be, you know, he is a hero of the, the um, connected internet, our community, or, you know, he is someone who should be, I think some American politician said in these exact words, he should be illegally assassinated. And I was like, that's it. An extraordinary thing for a politician to say. You know, really? someone should kill him illegally. Um, you know, I think we have to start off with the assumption that neither of those are quite right. It's a more complicated position than that. Um, uh, my simplest, simplistic view of this is that um, there is something potentially really positive about resetting the global diplomatic state with actual true information. That, you know, to some extent, people, um, there is something very complicated and difficult about um, the kind of perpetual misinformation that circulates around between organizations, between countries, that actually having that reset in public could provide a whole range of exciting opportunities for actually progressing through some of these issues. You know, like if China really does think, you know, North Korea is a bit of a problem, then surely us knowing that is an opportunity. But you Again, then there are the risks. So, I mean, I think I, without wanting to, to spend too much time on the, the positives and negatives of WikiLeaks itself, the, the role of privacy, the role of information in that, I mean, I think what is fair to say is um, like, there's going to have to be a kind of double double relationship here. You know, there's going to have to be something which is about, I mean, fundamentally, information is very hard to keep private, um, particularly if you expose it to millions of people. Uh, in a system it's quite easy to copy it's quite easy to shunt out in public my hope is that, that um, this will result in 
a, a greater transparency in what people say and do at one end of the trunk and that less information will be protected better um, and more aggressively. That's that's kind of, that's probably the best I can come up with there is that I, I, you know, I do think we're at this moment where, where it, it's, it's impossible for a state to function without having a, a large amount of information that is available to a large number of people. Um, and the fact that that information is e easily copyable and distributable, you know, is going to come at a cost. And it's one of the reasons, that, you know, one of the areas we have to worry about privacy at a state level um, or at a company level is because, not because what companies do, but because of security problems inside them and the fact that humans have to be involved to can abuse it. It's a bigger issue. Um, but if you're going to say, you know, but like, essentially what I'm trying to say is large companies and large countries are going to find information is leaked. It's going to be more information than was leaked in the past because it's more easy to leak it. Uh, my hope is that the process of leaking some of that information will encourage companies and organizations to be a bit more open about some of the information they've got because they have to assume, you know, and, and to, to feel slightly more under the spotlight because they have to assume that some of that information is going to get out in public. Um, I, yeah. The other end, some information needs to be kept secure. So hopefully they'll do that more actively. Yeah, I was just, I was going to say, I'm glad you, you punched that in at the end. I'm going to sound like the weird conservative here, but I think we need to distinguish. I think one thing that I'm worried about with WikiLeaks is that people are thinking all transparency, all information open all the time is what we want. On certain things we do, and I was lucky to actually have, this is going to be really weird, a conversation with a guy who used to run MI5 about WikiLeaks yeah. at, a, at a conference. And the point is, you know, a lot of the world's, Good things in the world have happened in diplomacy and private channels. So I think governments, you know, governments do need a certain amount of, of, of privacy. I think yeah. certain amount of data does need to, and information does need to be out there in, in, in the forefront. And I think resetting, like you said, is true. But I hope we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because sometimes peace and real world negotiations for things that we want have to happen in the dark. Because com I mean, countries extent, can't afford to do them in the light, you know? To some extent, this stuff comes down to how trusted politicians are. Uh, and I think this right. is actually really, really disappointing in some ways. Um, but we feel, I mean, like I look at a, a Barack Obama and I, I see someone who I think is extraordinarily trustworthy. Uh, um, and uh, perhaps people don't trust him at all. But lots and lots and lots of people do not trust him in the slightest. Um, uh, and frankly, like the idea of Sarah Palin, you know, I would like. Every every single diplomatic conversation that was sent to Sarah Palin, every conversation she had in the White House if she became president, I want it all public. I'm terrible. Well, do you know what's ironic <laughs> is she spent, yeah. she has now spent uh, asked for uh, the state of Alaska to keep uh, her correspondence there, which is supposed to be publicly owned, uh, to delay it being released for another six months. Like longer now, it'll be because MSNBC and some of the press asked for access to a bunch of her emails. So she's 
she's for somebody who's using what's ironic is she's using social media unfortunately better than the other politicians oh, totally yeah. only because the other politicians by the way are so terrible i don't think she's really yeah. that much genius in social media it's just the other ones are just horrible. right well here's the metaphor which goes back to what we said earlier and god help me for making it is sarah palin is to the startups as the old school politicians are to the large companies you know she's willing yeah, to just true, throw it out there and test and fail and iterate and do all those things she also has access yeah she also has access to these channels that have appeared you know like i mean in the same way that anyone a startup can build on top of ec2 or s3 you know sarah palin has a a pre-built um soapbox in blogs and twitter um uh, and youtube that no one else Oh, and and fox news which is paying her the discovery channel which is also paying her yes true true Oh, so before before we um, go too far down the Sarah, Sarah Palin handle, I mean, it, it is also important to yeah. um, with the WikiLeaks thing to to remind people that you know we also do need some of this data private because you know it can get people killed. You know, we <laughs> in certain countries, you know, if we don't have some of the well, to be fair, you let, let mean, to be fair, it's not the information that's, that's killing true, but, them; but, it's other people killing, you know, going after them. Well, no, but I think right. we also need to be. But it needs to be clear that, that in, in many cases, keeping the information private also gets people killed. Yes, uh, agreed, agreed. Uh, That's I what mean, I'm saying. Yeah. It's it's we gotta not throw the baby out with the bathwater around WikiLeaks. Right. In the end, this as, comes as was brilliantly down said to by whether you trust this. Yes, as was brilliantly said, and I think um, by by this guy who used to be um, a very high level spook was. Um, I think what, you know, WikiLeaks was inevitable and it had to come out and we do need a reset. I just wish that the individual who had released it wasn't as unsavory as he was. <laughs> so I think <laughs> what's happening with WikiLeaks is Julian Assange and WikiLeaks and what needed to happen are, are being conflated together. And so that's... I think, there's, the- I think there's a problem there, though, because in some ways, Julian Assange is the perfect target for this. Right, right. Right. We don't know much about this rape allegation. We know that he's a bit of a, you know, um, uh, uh, that he's got fairly strongly held political views. What we don't hear anything about is the guy who actually leaked the information. He's sort of disappeared off, the, off much of the news. He's kind of irrelevant. The spotlight is on Assange. And I mean, and it's interesting to me there because, whatever, you know, with ignoring all the conspiracy theories, the one thing you're going to do is try and... Dis- Everyone is going to try and do all the countries involved in this. Are going to try and do is, is discredit him one way or another. We know that, of course, of course. Right. So, like you know, uh, and or old, uh, but actually worse than that, they're not trying to discredit him. Well, I think we we do know the base. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there there are two issues: is that WikiLeaks and his role in that, and then the rape allegations. I think have been are pretty clear. And um, now that things have been reported, and that that's a whole thing. Unfortunately, I don't think we have time to get into. But it is ironic because the private privacy issues came up very strongly there. Um, uh, the, the names of the of the victims were um, released by liberal media. Michael Moore went out and talked about them. And yep. um, it's really been Sadie Doyle when you went after him. And that's a, something that was actually one of the most amazing uh, examples of tumbling I've seen on Twitter. And I'm anybody who, if anyone knows Sadie Doyle, I'm really trying uh, to get her to come on the show to talk about that and other things. But she marshaled a sort of four or five day campaign that successfully got Michael Moore to apologize on national television, purely from Twitter, tweeting from um, mostly victim, you know, past survivors uh, to, to get him to say that he basically said inaccurate stuff and their name shouldn't have been released because of course they haven't have had their lives threatened. Um, yeah. That just that they should be able to make the allegations, not to say that we're making any conclusions about them just purely on the basis of, can you say this, <laughs> you know? So it's just no, ironic. I think, I, 
how one one person's dealings with uh, privacy and transparency end up coming back around to him, and then he's he's mostly claimed he deserves his private life. You know, even though people well, went I to think this is. I th- well, I think this is a real distinction, isn't it? And that there's multiple things here. Um, we can say, um, we can say, uh, it's likely that people are trying to smear Assange without saying that it, that that he definitely didn't do anything bad. So exactly. We can, we can say we can well, that's also the thing, say, is we can hold both his ideas in our head at the same absolutely. time. Absolutely. That's the challenge. Yeah. That's but, we, the, but the most important thing for me is that, that requires sophistication and maturity. Yeah, the most but, the most important thing for me is to say is to distinguish between him and WikiLeaks. Like the fact that in order right. that to that you can smear WikiLeaks and and discredit WikiLeaks on the basis that one of the guys who worked there, not what they've done, but one of the guys who worked there, who's you know, uh, you know important but, in that organization, such as it is, may have may have raped someone. But it may so be a little irrelevant. bit. It may be a little bit tough, Tom, don't you think, to, I mean, that's a, that's a common tactic in lots of situations that we're going to go after this person yeah. and what they did and disown everything in their sort of general agenda, except for the fact that yeah. WikiLeaks is just by what it's doing, having such a practical impact in such a massive way that even if you went after and smeared the hell out of Assange successfully, you still have to deal with the reality that the leaks are going to keep coming. We're going to see information about Bank of America next and whoever else uh, is in. And there there's I don't see how the disruptiveness stops just because there's a media. Oh, it doesn't stop. But what does happen about Assange? It doesn't stop. But what 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 does stop is the idea that he is, um, you know, it's a very good way of asserting. I mean, what you're seeing, I think, is. He's been going like he he is trying to embarrass the concepts of government in some way. He's trying to embarrass government and what uh, and and kind of ridicule government. And what what they are doing is saying like like this this individual, you know, of the two of us, government versus individual, you should trust us. Like it doesn't matter actually what comes out in the end um, because you know each one of those allegations will be. He's scrutinized and explored and dug into in some ways. But fundamentally, the battle, I think, is about whether or not he's a radical um, uh, figurehead that the, pub- the public rallies behind in-, in their distrust and disgust of the way government operates, or whether he's an ostracized figure um, who happens to expose a few problems in government. Like, from government's perspective, it's very important that you look at Assange and don't think of him as like, you know, a, a noble revolutionary. Mm. Um, uh, fighting the man. That's what they're. That's that's what they're undermining. It's not the actual things that come out because they can just put that down to individuals being stupid, or you know they can apologize and move on from it. But the idea of him as like Robin Hood or something—that's what they're trying to dismantle. Right, and and, and very and, successfully, and, and and sadly very successfully because to me, it, it, if it, it's it's actually. I'm worried about a government where someone can put all that. I am actually worried about a government where someone can just like take a USB and hook it up to a computer and tell. I'm yeah. worried, you know, that's, I mean, where the, I mean, that's where the energy should have been going, you know. I mean, that's the so, privacy scandal. The privacy scandal yes, here is exactly. government completely incapable of looking after important information. I mean, I mean that's you know, the scary part, and we're focused on him instead. But of the but that's that, I mean the, the point was yeah. that was the, that was their response to realizing that actually sharing information internally would be a good thing. So the fact that 1.3 million people could read those cables was deemed to be a good idea because it was you know, it was their their little private blogosphere to read about what the diplomats are doing around the world. 
you know that that's you know if you actually look at the cables they're basically sort of um little blog posts from the from the different diplomats in the different places they're like oh there's this stuff going on in my in my corner of the world here's what i think about it yeah, it's um, not far away. yeah. it's it's and that you know the, the fact that they gave that to you know a large number of people was probably a good thing overall right, exactly. it is a good thing but the fact that but should you be able to sort of download all of it so easily and take it with you i don't know well, so is it you know why are we? It's not something very sad guy? that it's easier to download all the government cables than it is to get your own tweets back. Certainly, <laughs> <laughs> I think this is and just as That's to wrap up my tonight. thoughts on this one. This is this is the same area. This is the same thing. Like a good product designer, you know, someone who's looking at the way to make the world better, more efficient, more creative. You know, in various ways, looks towards the possibilities. In this case, the possibilities of, of having information spread around more effectively in government so that they. You can actually see what's going on. That's a positive got, aspiration. The right thing, I, to, but I'm and the sorry, problem. This, but I, 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 this is me wrapping up. I'm trying to help you. Uh, um, and the net, and the, the other bit, the potential abuses are exactly the things that product designers are there to try and get rid of, to alleviate, to fix. So, same thing with privacy in the past. Same thing with um, information overload, government information. This is yeah. I'm done. I'm done. You can finish now. <laughs> Well, there's so much to say, and luckily we will have a post-show and we can have you back for all we know next week because it's still a bit of an open question. After that, we'll have um, composer Lisa Bilava with us two Thursdays from now. She's um, a classical uh, composer and performer who performed with Philip Glass Ensemble for years, and she creates large pieces for people in public space and lots of musicians to come together and sort of tumbles through music, uh, people who don't necessarily know each other in public space. So you have we have that to look forward to. I also want to let everybody know about Create Baltimore. Our own wonderful producer, Andrew Hazlitt, has been involved with createbaltimore.org. It's happening Woo-hoo! 15th of January, and they're tumbling artists and tech tech folks in Baltimore. And I, I uh, in my massive um, uh, road trip, which some of you know about, Heart Trip, it's hashtag, well, Heart Symbol Trip, and I'll be doing a little workshop show about that soon. Um, I got to, to see Baltimore with Andrew, which was really pretty neat thing. Which has been really, I mean, Tom, it's just such a delight to speak to you. And I'm sorry to have sort of been so kludgy about coming in at the end there, but we're really uh, trying to keep things. No, no, bit- no, it's fine. It's awesome. Um, wonderful conversation again with uh, Kevin Marks. As always, anything you want to let people know about this week, Kevin? No, nothing coming up this week. I'm having a quiet week. And uh, Debs, anything you want to let people know about? Uh, no, hibernating this week. Well, I have a few things to let people know about. I'll be doing my unpresenting workshop in which I teach people how to tumble or basically how to take the way presentations mostly suck uh, and really engage a room and enjoy yourself more, prepare less, and really, really learn how to be yourself in public and pull other people out and have a great um a great session. Uh, those workshops, I'm doing one in Toronto on the 17th of February, my birthday, in fact. And I'll be speaking at OCAD the day before, Ontario College of Art and Design, for people who are interested and up here in Canada. I'll be in Seattle. It looks like uh, in April, I'll be performing Cookie there, my show where I bake with everybody that helps set some of this tumbling stuff off, where I started thinking, what if the audience was in the show and was the funny, fun, part of the funny part of the show? 
so that will be happening. I'll be performing with Ani DeFranco and Mont Barlow and all these amazing people and doing and presenting out there. There are demand pages that are starting to happen now on Facebook. So if you'd like me to do it and presenting in your town, just you need 10 people to start a Facebook page. They're up there for Berlin and Seattle now. And you can go to unpresenting.com and start one up or let me know if you'd like me in your town and I'll schedule a, a trip. So that's what I've got going on. Tom Coates. What is the passion of your moment? Is there something you want people to test out to try? Uh, what are you? I would love to- it. I would love yeah. it if people could go and have play with lanyards. I don't. If, uh, um, I I really believe it's a lovely, lovely product. That um, uh, my I was best man at his wedding, Simon uh, Willison's wedding. Uh, and I'm sure uh, and if we're fortunate, we'll, and- we'll get to have them join. Yes, us soon. no, I'd love that. Um, like I was best have- man's wedding. They went on their honeymoon and they started building it on their honeymoon because they got bored. Uh, and uh, no, no uh, comments. I'm, I'm not sure it's a great sign. <laughs> um, and it's really good fun. Uh, and so, uh, lanyrd.com, I would really recommend people go and have a look at that. Um, otherwise, I'll be doing some public speaking soon. I'm going to be at FOA Las Vegas, Future of Web Las Vegas in June, and WebStock in New Zealand in February. Fantastic. So people can go to lanyard, L-A-N-Y-R-D.com and find out where I'll be speaking. And I guess I got to get mine in there too. I got to get on the lanyard stick. Tom Coates, such a pleasure to have you here. Lots of things, unfortunately. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Ask you. It's just a pleasure. Everybody, great to see you all this week. Thanks, Myers and Zeno and Gene Becker for joining us and Cass, Christy Dean and all the folks who are been in the chat room. You can always... Um, Come live at TumbleVision.tv slash live. We'll see you here next week. If you're out of here live, stick around for the post-show chat. And we'll be back another week with another great show about keeping the web a good human place to live. TumbleVision. Bye-bye.